Good morning. You guys doing well? Once again, I'm just as excited this weekend as I was last weekend. What a beautiful place God has given to us. How many are here for the first time in our new building? New building, first time? Pretty cool, huh? Good to have you with us this weekend. Welcome. Uh, That song that you just heard, City on a Hill, that's really our theme of our current teaching series. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22. Matthew chapter 5. That's in the New Testament, first book of the New Testament. A couple theme verses here are... You are the light of the world. A city, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what this whole series is about. It's our marching orders right here at Desert Breeze. Planted right here on I-17, God wants us to make an impact in this community unlike we've ever made before. Now, let me ask you this question. You can discuss it with the folks around you. If someone were to ask you, so what's the big deal? What's the difference? What's the major difference between Christianity and all the major cults and religions of our world today? What would be the one thing that you would say to them? You need to know this, by the way. What would you say? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the answer to that question. The difference between Christianity and all the major cults and religions of our world today. Real quick. Okay, what do you guys think? Yell it out to me. Grace. Somebody said grace. How many were thinking along the lines of grace? Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's crazy. It's unbelievable. When you understand God's grace and there's an explosion that takes place in your heart, you're never, ever the same. It's what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. The gospel isn't good advice on what you must do to be right with God. It is good news about what God has done to make us right with him. Do you hear the difference? It's not what you do to make yourself right with God. That's, that's religion. That's works. Christianity is what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, to make us right with him. It's amazing. It's amazing grace. And so when, when we see the, the term paid in full or Jesus paid it all, we sang a song. We used to sing that song. I think maybe we sing a kind of a version of that song. How many are familiar with that song, Jesus paid it all? Or, or the, the idea when Jesus was on the cross, he said something. He said, it is finished. And in essence, he was saying paid in full. What does that mean? It means that he not only purchased our forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. That's pretty big. But he also paid for our ticket to heaven and everything in between to live fullness of life in him. It's paid in full, paid in full by God's grace, God's unmerited favor. Now, as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we're looking at, chapters 5, 6, and 7 here in Matthew Jesus is teaching, and we learned a couple weeks ago a little bit of what conversion looks like. That's the Beatitudes, and we talked about our relationship with God. And then the week after that, that that was the week that we finished up Sandra Day O'Connor. And then last weekend was our first weekend here. We talked about now that we have this relationship with God, what should be our relationship with the world? We talked about salt and light. Now we get into kind of the nitty-gritty of how he transforms our lives and what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live. And so Jesus is not only concerned with our behavior, but also the beliefs that drive it and the power to do it. And in these six verses we're going to read here in just a few moments, 
Jesus tells us three things. Here's the three things that he tells us. This is how you should live. And we're only going to talk about one, one characteristic of how he wants us to live. It, it'll, it's from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. And he goes even deeper than that. It really talks about our attitude. So this is how you should live. Verses 21 through 22. You will never be able to live like this. Verses 18 through 20. But in and through me, you can. That will be verse 17 that we'll be reading. Those three truths are the theme of the Bible. This is how you're to live. Now think about this. So when you read through the Bible, this is how you're supposed to live. Oh, by the way, you can't live like that. There's no way you'll be able to do that in your own strength. Oh, but, but I will do it through you, for you. I will work in your life in such a way that I will begin to transform your life by my grace. That's the essence of what the Bible teaches us. That's where we're headed with our study this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into our, our text. God, we are excited to be here today. Glorious Father, your grace is more than we deserve, more than we could ever dream or imagine. In your grace, you give to us nothing less than yourself. Your presence in our lives is our greatest treasure. It's our greatest pleasure. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Your grace is your presence in our lives, empowering us to be what you want us to be, to do what you want us to do. So God, teach us what that means, how to apply those truths to our life. Help us to live fully in your grace. Open our eyes to the wonderful things you want to teach us through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at our text here. We're going to look at verses 17 through 22. And then we're going to unpack it. You can see the, the outlines kind of laid out in front of you. Here's what, we, what you must do as Jesus followers, verses 21 through 22. You'll never be able to do it, verses 18 through 20. And then in and through him you can. That's verse 17. Let me begin reading in verse 17. Do not think, these are red letters. This is what Jesus is speaking to his disciples, followers. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, let's begin with that first thought, here's what you must do as Jesus' followers, verses 21 through 22. He talks about murder. Don't murder. He says, it says, do not murder. But I say to you, and then he goes through a list of kind of things uh, that he doesn't want us to have. So he's really getting down to the root, really our heart issue. Here's your first fill in the blank. Malice is just as important to deal with as the murder it leads to. That's the point that he's making here. Don't murder. I haven't murdered anybody. Yeah, but have you had anger towards somebody? That's what he ultimately gets to. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about our heart 
some 900 times it uses the word heart. The attitude, the heart, the attitude of the heart, the belief, or the attitude that drives the action is just as important to deal with is what he's saying here. The belief that drives the behavior is just as important to deal with. Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Mark 7.20-23 through 23, Jesus is talking and he says, hey, what is it that defiles a person? Is it the music they listen to? Is it the movies they go to? Yeah, that, that certainly has influence. But ultimately, all the wickedness comes from a person's heart is what he says. He says it goes, it's, it's from a person's heart. So we have to deal with our own heart. It's really important. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, Malice, what does that mean? We'll talk about that in a minute. So he's saying the malice is just as important to deal with as the murder it leads to. Doesn't God get angry? I mean, isn't that what he's talking about? He's saying, don't get angry. But doesn't God get angry at people? I mean, didn't Jesus get angry with the money changers in the temple? Yeah, John 2. Doesn't Jesus call the Pharisees fools? Yes. In Matthew 23, here's the next point on your notes. There is a difference between compassion versus contempt-motivated anger. So, so I think it's important to understand. It tells us, um, he, uh, Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry, but do what? But don't sin. How many are familiar with that verse? So it says, so anger is a part of our emotional makeup. It's appropriate to get angry, but don't in your anger sin. And so there's a difference between it. And this is what he wants us to understand. There's a difference between compassion versus contempt motivated anger. And he uses in verse 22, he uses a word, some of your translations, how many in your, the Bible you're reading says raka for that translation for insults. Anybody have that? It's kind of interesting. It's like, what is that? Raka basically means insults, but the translators didn't know what to put there. It's really a hard word to, to translate into English. And so basically, I've got it on your notes. Verse 22, it means nothing or empty. You good for nothing, the New American Standard says. You're worthless piece of whatever you want to add on to that. But it's, that's, that's the idea is what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. It's an attitude of contempt, disdain, condescension, belittling. So compassion-motivated anger is more from brokenness. Contempt... Motivated anger is more from bitterness. So your anger can be, be motivated out of brokenness or it can be motivated out of bitterness. And that's the difference that he's making. He's making a distinction. So Jesus' anger was always out of brokenness, sadness, wanting their best. Our anger tends to be out of bitterness, pride, ego, personal offense. So how do we know the difference? How do you know the difference of what kind of anger you're expressing? Um... Whether your anger is filled with contempt, the seedbed of murder, that's what Jesus is getting at, or compassion, the seedbed of mercy. Here, here's how you know the difference. If you can think of someone and enjoy thoughts of their diminishment, humiliation, or their being brought down or suffering, you have a grudge. You have the wrong kind of anger. If you are ever happy when someone is sad or sad when someone is happy then you have the wrong kind of anger. You have resentment and bitterness, and that's what he's talking about. And I'm, I'm very guilty of this. And if you think long and hard about this, you are too. That's the reason why we're going to get to the point where you can't live like this. It's an impossibility. I mean, I found myself doing it just this, just this morning. We, we've got, this is a new place. We've got a new TV. 
in the, the foyer. And so the guys that were building the, the big plaque for our, uh, for our life groups, I don't know why, but they were kind of building it and picked it up right under the TV and broke the TV. And I'm thinking, you idiots. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm doing exactly what he said not to do. I mean, I'm thinking, what the heck is wrong with you guys? You're going to build it, build it over here. And, you know, I'll tell you what. I would have never done that. (laughs) How many know I'm lying? I've done plenty of things just like that. There's no doubt about it. And yet, I was guilty of what he just said. I was like, I was angry. And it wasn't for their well-being either. Okay? It wasn't the seedbed of mercy. It was the seedbed of murder. You worthless piece of... When we, you know, when we do that, when we say that, he's saying, don't do that. Don't you understand what's going on in your heart? And so, so that's, I mean, that's convicting. Now, Jesus is saying, don't... I think he's also saying this to us. Don't look at murderers and say, how could they do that? See, you didn't have their life and you don't know what they're up against. And and, and no way are we justifying murder. What they did was wrong, but don't you know you have the same seed in your heart? That's what he's saying. Um, I've got a book. A guy does some commentary on C.S. Lewis's uh, really brilliant statements that C.S. Lewis makes and and uh, he makes a comment about what C.S. Lewis saying. In Mere Christianity, Lewis argues that the reason God tells us not to judge, and we're going to actually get into that eventually when we get to verse, uh, chapter 7. We're going to talk about judging, but this is kind of, a, kind of a foretaste of that. But he's saying, Lewis argues that the reason God tells us not to judge is that we do not know the raw material that other people are struggling with. The world expects all Christians to act equally happy and outgoing, but the fact is that it may be a greater victory for Christian A who has been strapped with a weight of inner demons and psychological complexes to smile than for Christian B who has been blessed from birth with a loving family, a healthy body, and a sound finances to donate $5,000 to charity. See, we're so quick to judge and we don't know where that person is coming from and what's going on in life. That's a little bit of the idea. Why do you have an attitude of contempt You have no idea what this person is up against. And oh, by the way, that's the seedbed of murder when you have contempt, when you have insults, when you have that kind of anger that's not merciful. It's all about resentment. You're not seeking their good. So, okay, more conviction. Thank you very much, Pastor Ray. You're welcome. And uh, let me give you the next fill in the blank on your notes. So we must treat every person and every encounter as an infinitely precious being in the image of God, never demeaning and condescending in any way. So when the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, and this is, that's the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. In essence, what he's saying is to love your neighbor in such a way that you're willing to meet his or her needs and, and and spend the same amount of thought, emotion, and action you would spend for your own needs. In other words, look after their interest as much as you would look for after your own interest. If you have a coworker that uh, that gets promoted ahead of you, you should be just as happy for them as you would for yourself. Ow! That's what he's. That's what he means by that. 
And I really believe that if we really had the love of God in our heart saturated, in our heart, we would be able to do that. But we don't live there. So let me give you, this was from George Whitfield. This was kind of a, a test that he would give himself every day. He would ask himself this question, have I thought or spoken or acted unkindly or unsympathetically or uncharitably to anyone? And he would ask himself that every day. Get that out morning, noon, and night, and it will wreck you. It will wreck you if you're really honest. In fact, I came across a little bit of a a test. Let me give you a quick test here. This is an irritation quotient test. Okay? So here we go. Irritation quotient test. When driving, how often do you use your horn? One, rarely if ever. Two, as needed at least once a day. Number three, it is the most used part of my car. At a restaurant, how often do you complain about the food? One, never. Two, only if it's cold or there are too many bugs in it. Number three, regularly, and I go out to my car and honk the horn until they get it right. Here's the third one. While waiting in an express checkout line at the supermarket, I, one, meditate quietly or visualize world peace. Number two, count to see if anyone has more than 12 items. Number three, threaten anyone who looks as if they're going to use coupons. So, I mean, look at, look at your life. Look at your irritation quotient. I just talked to my wife, and she could say, I've come a long ways in this, man, because it wouldn't take much. The crazy drivers here in in the valley, you know, it's just, and of course, my wife would say, you're a crazy driver. You're talking about yourself. You're messed up. No, I'm not. Get off my back. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, just, you know, all of that. So, So the sarcastic way you responded to the person's blog or Facebook post, the cold shoulder to the family member that is... So annoying at times. The resentment you have toward the coworker who got promoted ahead of you. It's not just discourteous to say or to do unkind things, but it has, it has the smell of hell is what he says here. Actually, in verse 22, he says, we'll, we'll, liable, we'll be liable to the hell of fire. It smells of sulfur is what he's saying. When we have that kind of an attitude towards anybody because it's inconsistent with who we are and if we really are living in the reality of God's grace for us, we're going to take an honest look at ourselves. Okay, how you feeling? How you doing? Probably about how I'm doing. Not so good when it comes to those kind of lists and when we look at that. And that's the point. That's what he's trying to get at here. Now, you'll never be able to do it, verses 18 through 20. And yet he, he, he says, hey, the law, it's really, really, really important. He says, I came to fulfill it. In fact, not one dot or little mark in the law will go away. It's going to be fulfilled. It's important, and it's important that you preach and proclaim what the law says. Now, let me give you some thoughts on that. Being saved by grace doesn't mean we can live however we please. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, talk about that. For by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Anybody know what verse 10 says after it talks about being saved, after being, uh, talking about being saved by grace? It says that we are God's what? We are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. And he uses a word, really interesting word. It's a Greek word. It means, uh, we get our word poem. It means poema. We are his uh, 
We are his masterpiece. We are his piece of work. Turn to the person next to you real quick and say, you are God's piece of work. I mean, it gives a whole new meaning behind the, that phrase, doesn't it? Piece of work. God's working in our lives. And so we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And those good works are to draw people's hearts back to him. James two seventeen and 26. You guys know this. If you can fill in the blank here. Uh, if I can remember the verse. But it says, uh, let's see. Faith without works is, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Martin Luther put it this way. We are saved by faith alone, but, but the faith that saves is never alone. So we're saved by faith, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but, but there's going to be a difference in our lives. So if there's not a difference, what do we do? We go back to our beliefs. We go back to, do I really believe this? I don't work on my, I don't do behavioral modification. I go back to my beliefs. I go back to my attitude. If my actions are right, you go back to your, act, your attitude. Where's my attitude? Where am I? Am I living in the reality of his grace? Obviously I'm not because I'm not responding to this situation appropriately. So you don't beat yourself up over, man, I need, to, I need to step to it. I need to try harder. I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. That's not Christianity. No, it's, you know what? I'm not living in the reality of his amazing love for me and his grace. You get back to that. Oh God, I... I've forgotten how much you love me. See, and that's, that's what really, when you understand the grace of God, that's why grace is, is truly amazing. Um, by the way, biblical life change isn't the, isn't the absence of, of struggles, but the freedom to choose to live for God's glory, that is holiness, in the midst of those struggles. Is it hard? Yes. Every day it's a struggle. Here's the next point on your notes. The law of God is who God is, and what we should look like if we love and follow Jesus and is consistent with our design. Let, let, let's kind of unpack that here real quick. So first of all, when we look at the Ten Commandments, when we look at the law of God, when we look at all of Scripture and, and God's directives that he gives to us, basically he's defining who God is. Jesus came to show us that. Um, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God that came to fulfill the law. We saw that in verse 17. He says, I came to fulfill the law. I come to show you God. And uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You want to know what God's all about? Look at my life. And so Jesus came to fulfill the law. Let me ask you this question. How do you love somebody? How do you show someone that you, that you really love them? You find out what pleases them, and you do it. And you take it as seriously as, as Jesus said. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not one iota one dot will pass away therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these no there's no relaxing you want to live according to his word because you love him you want to you want to live for his glory according to his word motivated out of a, a love and a heart that's been captivated by by who Jesus is that's that's the idea and so the law of god is is who god is it's what we should look like uh, if we love and follow God. And then it's also consistent with our design. What would you do if you never changed the oil in your car? How about if you tried to put diesel in that car that's supposed to run on gasoline? Think that would help the car? No, it's not according to its design. 
I was telling my wife the other day, I, said, uh, I asked her, I said, so what do you think if we had, every morning we had a stack of pancakes, like buttermilk pancakes, and smothered them with, with uh, butter and poured all kinds of syrup, and we had that every morning, and then for lunch, some of you are going, yeah! And then for lunch, we went to Five Guys, got the biggest hamburger, and then for dinner, we went out for Mexican food. Some of you are already going, oh, that sounds bad. How long do you think I would live if I did that every day? I, because it's contrary to our design. I mean, some of us are, you know, we, we know that that doesn't work too well on our body. Maybe if you're like uh, 16 years old, you could probably pull that off for a little while. But after a while, you'd be going, oh, my gut hurts. I'm not, my body's not running like it should or like it could. And so... It's not according to our design. And so when we live outside of God's directives, it's not according to his design. God's law is not busy work. It's not just to keep us busy. It's meant to to protect us from the worst and provide the very best for us. He loves us. God's will in scripture often seems to frustrate our deepest longings, such as sexuality. And we're going to talk about it next week. It's like, what? Sex? Between a man and a wife in marriage? Wow, that's pretty restrictive. That's prudish. What's up with that? We're going to talk about it next week. You'll have to come back. (laughs) But sometimes it seems like it, it frustrates our deepest longings, but in reality, his commands are from his love and wisdom for our deepest and most durable joy. Here's the next one on your notes. Only faith righteousness can exceed works righteousness. Only faith righteousness can exceed works righteousness. Works righteousness were what the Pharisees. That's the reason why when he says what he says, let me continue with the statement here. Faith righteousness is a positional righteousness, so it's an imputed, so it's a righteousness. Righteousness means approval. So I have God's approval. It's been given to me by God's grace because of what Jesus Christ did. And so the Pharisees were all about uh, earning it. So if you indeed have the imputed righteousness, it will indeed inevitably lead to a practical righteousness and imparted righteousness. So, so there's the positional and then there's the practical righteousness where my life begins little by little to reflect who Jesus is. Um, but the way that you do that is by God's grace and you keep going back to the fact that you have an imputed righteousness that nothing can ever mess that up, that you have right standing with God. So you keep coming back to that because the more you begin to understand that live in the reality of his amazing grace, the more it begins to transform your life. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us in order to make us lovable. And, it's, and the way that we, it transforms us is to be captivated each and every day to fight to find your deepest delight in him and his love for you. You always go back to where's my attitude when it comes to God and and me and how we're working this out. And and I know that he will never leave me or forsake me. He proved it on the cross. He's done everything that is necessary to bridge the gap that separated me from him. And and all I got to do is by faith enter into it and experience it. And that's what ultimately transforms my life. And so in verse 20... I mean, it had to have blown their minds when they, when they said, when Jesus said to them, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the Pharisees were the highly educated, deeply dedicated to keeping the law, hundreds of rules, pretty amazing. They were the highly esteemed religious elite of their day. 
And there's a major difference, by the way, and so we, we do live, we do live as the standard, God's word is the standard for our lives. We look at the Ten Commandments, they're important, but there's a major difference between obeying God to achieve salvation and obeying God because you have received salvation. You don't obey God to receive salvation, that's pharisaical kind of works righteousness, typically motivated out of fear and pride. But we obey him because we have received our righteousness and that's motivated out of a heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and all that he has and all the wealth that we have in him. And so there's a major difference in that. How many grew up in church and you guys remember what flannel graph is? Anybody know what flannel graph? Remember the flannel graph characters? And here's Samson and Samson is a man of God. And oh, he's, you want to pattern your life after Samson. Samson. And, and then, oh, look at Adam and Eve. And oh, they kind of messed up, but you know, everything's okay. And you know, it almost turns all these characters like they were into, like they're heroes, heroes of the faith. So you want to be like Samson? No, you don't want to be like Samson. I begin to read a little bit later on in my life and I go, this guy is really messed up. He's a pervert. <laughs> Samson has probably a porn, he's probably a, porn addict, you know, he's like, he's really struggling with women in his life. How many were a little bit shocked later on when you started really reading the stories and you realize Adam and Eve, they seem like really nice people. They got kicked out of the garden of Eden because they rejected God. That's pretty harsh. In fact, they brought this mess that we're currently in on us. And then, hey, okay, uh, then they have a, some kids and, and then one of the kids kills the other. Talk about sibling rivalry. So much for homeschooling. Oh my goodness. You know, that just, uh, I, and then you read a little bit further on and uh, you begin to think Noah. Yeah, he's our man. Woohoo, Noah. In fact, God's pretty upset at the whole world and he wipes out the whole world. That's a nice story to tell kids. Do you hear the people wailing and crying to get on the boat? They're drowning. It's like, ah, what happened here? You know, it's just like, it's because it's the wrath of God. And he saves this family knowing. You think, hey, they really got it together. He is so messed up after this boat ride. He gets off that boat, gets drunk and naked. Like he's on some college spring break. I mean, it's crazy. You're going, these people weren't very nice. And then Abraham, he pimps, he pimps out his wife twice. You'd think once was enough the second time because he's, he's afraid of his own skin, his own life. I mean, we got these ideas of these, uh, like they're heroes. You know what? There's only one hero, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. I mean, praise God. Praise God. And so this is what it tells us is that God takes crooked sticks and draws straight lines with them. He can take our messed up lives and he redeems us. That's the, that's the message of the Bible. He redeems us. He loves us. He pursues us. We're a mess. We are desperate for him. And he, he comes after us and he loves us. And uh, that's the idea. That's the whole idea. So cheer up. You're more flawed than you think. And the world is more fallen than most want to admit, but God's grace is bigger than you could ever dream. No matter what you're struggling with, there is no sin that you have committed or has been committed against you that is a match for God's redeeming and restoring grace. And here's something I've been struggling with in my own life. Um, 
You ever have people in your life, you just think, man, that's a hopeless situation. You just go, oh my God, oh, God touched their life. I had one of those this last week where I was like struggling with, with, a, with a family member and I was just overwhelmed with grief. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly this, once again reminded me, the more you understand the doctrine of God's amazing grace, the less you'll ever see any person or situation as hopeless. And I go, oh God, thank you. God, thank you. And then, of course, he reminded me of my own screw-ups and just said, hey, you know what? And my mom used to always say this, except for the grace of God, there go I. She'd look at somebody, and uh, she was always good about not criticizing, and she would say, hey, you know what? Except for the grace of God, there go I. And uh, when we understand God's grace, that would be our attitude. That would be our attitude. By the way, guys, let me just say this. When your wife comes up and criticizes you, she says, you're a pathetic husband. Say, is that all you got on me? I got a whole list of things back here. I know I'm jacked up. I need Jesus. Keep praying for me. Thank you for your patience. What do you, how do you think your wife would respond? Her jaw would drop, wouldn't it? She'd go, whoa. For once, he's maybe a little bit humbled. Maybe he's understanding God's grace for the first time in his life. Seriously, when someone comes after you, you say, yeah, yeah, you know what? You're right. That's why I need Jesus. Keep praying for me, please. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Hey, let's pray. Let's pray about that. Let me help. I want to be a better husband. It's like, man, you talk about disarm the whole situation. That's the way to do it. Not that you're trying to disarm the situation, okay? That's wrong motives. Huh? Not a bad idea, though. Some of you took notes on that one. Woo! Oh, that'll get, get her off my back. Okay, enough said. And through him, Jesus, and, and in and through him, you can. In and through him, you can. So this is one of the most important statements in the Bible to understand the overall point of the Bible. Oh, my goodness, thank you, Jesus. In and through him, Jesus, you can. In and through him, you can. He redeems us. He loves us. How do you fulfill the law? There's two ways here. It's on your notes. You either keep it or you pay the penalty for breaking it. So, you know, you're not supposed to run through red lights. It's kind of dangerous, okay? Would you guys agree with that? So let's say you get pulled over because you ran through a red light and there was nobody coming the other way, so you were cool with it, but you got pulled over. And so, so you either stop, you know, when it's red, or if you run through red lights, you get pulled over, you pay the penalty. That's, that's the idea. Either way, the law can no longer condemn you. James 2, 10 and 11 says that if you violated the law in one area, you've, you've wiped out the whole thing. Romans six twenty three says, for the wages of sin is death. Of course, Romans three twenty three says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So we've all messed up. This is what I love about desert priests, because we're willing to admit that. Let me tell you something. If you ever get into a small group and you start sharing your heart and somebody looks at you kind of clucking their tongue or wagging their finger or thinking like, if you were, righteous, self, if you were self-righteous like me, they wouldn't say that. But, but if you're like me, you wouldn't have those problems. If you just read your Bible more, it's evident that they don't understand God's grace and they're not living in the reality of their own sinfulness and their neediness for Christ. That's just the bottom line. He who claims to be without sin deceives himself and the truth is not in him. See, that's 1 John 1, 8. And nine, it talks about that. And so, um, God's perfect holiness and our sinfulness combined to create a breach we cannot close. Here's the next one. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Oh my goodness. 
That's amazing. Jesus fulfills the law of God twice. Now, I didn't know this as I was until I started studying this. One of the commentators that I was I was reading, he said, Jesus fulfilled the law really twice. He not only lives it perfectly, but he also pays the penalty for the violation of it. He didn't die for himself. He died for us because he lived a perfect life. He died for you. Listen to me. He died for you. There was a chasm that separated you from God. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. Death means separation. You were doomed for all eternity. Jesus stepped in and died for you. He loves you. He loves you. When you understand that, live more in the reality of it, it revolutionizes your life. So he not only lived the perfect life, but he died for our sins. Jesus fulfills the law. When you believe in him, you get the reward and the regard of God of a perfectly obedient person. That's why when we baptize people, in essence, you're identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, substitutionary atonement. Uh, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm identifying with what he did. He did that for me, and now I have his perfect righteousness. I stand before God totally approved, regardless of what's gone down in your life. He died completely. No need to hide, deny, or excuse your sin because your Savior has fully paid for your penalty and purchased your acceptance with God. See, that's what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. In your greatest failure, you can run into the presence of a holy God because every sin has been forgiven through the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, I can't go to church. I really screwed up this last week. Run to church. Run into his arms. Even more so do you need to run towards him. When you've messed up royally, he's there. He's available. He's open. Understand his love for you because that's what transforms your life. If you want to stop doing what you're doing, run into his arms. Let him smother you with his love and his kisses. That's what transforms your heart. And then you'll stop chasing after that stuff because you'll see that in him is amazing satisfaction. The reason why you're doing that and the reason why we sin, we sin because we're not satisfied in him. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in Christ. So how do you overcome that? You find your satisfaction in him. You find your satisfaction in him. We are overwhelmed by life's trials and temptations because we're not finding our deepest satisfaction in him. So we, we pursue fighting the good fight of faith is fighting to find our delight in him. Here's the next one. A somebody, a somebody, Jesus, became a nobody so that a real nobody, you and I, will be treated like a somebody for all eternity. So this changes the way that you treat others. You don't treat people like a nobody. When he said Raka, he's saying, don't treat him like a nobody. Treat them with dignity, honor, respect, because that's what God has done for you. And so to the degree that you live in the reality of that, you know, what God has done for you, you're going to share that. You're going to pass that on to others and it's going to turn their head and you're going to let your light shine before men so they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven and it ultimately brings them back to God. Jesus has already earned God's full access, acceptance, and affection for you. All the love and value you most crave is already yours in Jesus. The Christian life is a call to enjoy an intimate love relationship with God, to belong, to be cherished, to experience infinite joy and eternal purposes. And then two of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and 9, 8. It gives us the definition of grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake 
he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. That's the definition of grace. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And then 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And I can't help but think that something, there's probably maybe a few here this morning that got the daylights beat out of you this week. And I'm telling you, I'm not saying, maybe you did literally, but I'm saying maybe spiritually or emotionally or relationally. And I'm telling you this morning, God is here to meet with you. He loves you and his grace is available. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He uses the word abound twice in there. And that word abound means to have like the, the banks of a river overflow. And that's what he does in our lives with his grace. We can't contain it. It so overwhelms us. And he's here this morning to meet with you. He loves you. He thinks the world of you. He gave his life for you. He became poor so that you might become rich in his love. And that's ultimately what transforms our lives. Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment. Maybe if you're here this morning, you say, man, I could use... I could use that grace this morning. Show of hands this morning. You could use some of that grace. God, you see the hands this morning. You see each person that's the struggle that they're going through, the emptiness, whether it be financially, relationally, whatever. God, you told us you would meet our needs, that you're able to make all grace abound to us so that in all things at all times, having all that we need, it's not based on our performance. God, we're, we're a mess We see our need for you, and God, you have provided us. You give to us nothing less than yourself. So God, we thank you for the sense of your presence that we've already felt here this morning. Through the worship, through the sharing, through Chuck and Tammy and what they've shared with us about what you're doing in Kenya and through their lives, and as we support them, God, thank you, thank you for that. God, help us. Help us to be open and honest about our shortcomings. Help us to see indeed... That what you want us, to, how you want us to live, and that there's no way we can do it, but, but in and through you, Jesus, we can. Help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with me? Let me give you a blessing here. Next week, we continue on in this study. We will be talking, as I said, about uh, lust and love. Is what we'll be talking about next week, what, what he has to say about that. But here's, uh, here's my blessing for you here this morning. And it's, uh, it's really based on, uh, it's based on the Second Corinthians 9, 8. God is able, so let God, God touch your life this next week. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And as you abound in every good work, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven so that we right here, Desert Breeze Community Church, that we are a city on a hill that points to our Savior. May we see more and more and more people come to know him through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you.